0: Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com.
1: Hello, and as L.P. Hartley famously said, the past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. But do they? Uh, Today on uh, our episode of The Rest is History, we want to look at the very recent past um, prompted by the return to Netflix of The Crown. But before we come to that... Uh, and I know, Dominic, you'll be straining at the leash about this because uh, recent British history is very much your subject, isn't it? So you're going to have you going to have lots to say. Um, I just wanted to say uh, to thank everybody who's uh, who's listening for um, having helped us get off to such a great start. It's uh, it's it's fantastic. We were a bit nervous about launching this, but we're thrilled that so many of you are out there are, are listening and uh, are emailing in and tweeting and contributing.
0: And please do keep that going. Yeah, we're, it's quite a surprise, isn't it, Tom? I was expecting a torrent of abuse. Well, I mean, I obviously get torrents of abuse naturally on a sort of daily basis, anyway. So this is a nice break for me to. Well, I was, I was kind of expect, use. I was kind of expecting
1: tumbleweed, to be honest. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> so neither abuse nor tumbleweed. So do please um, keep, uh, you know, keep letting us know what you think. Um, Should we, uh, we, we
0: read out some tweets? That would be we, a very good idea. Yeah, shall we engage with the with the great British public. Yes. So we had somebody, um, Alex Burson. He wrote. Thanks for doing it. The rest of his history is great. For your amusement, Stephen the Great of Moldova was sanctified by the Orthodox Church in the 1990s and is now Stephen the Great and Saint. He had four wives, as Saint should, uh, and was known to be quick to spill blood, but he built churches and defended Christianity. He was quite great. It's just that the Saint is both a late edition and amusing in the context of episode one. So, there you go. Yeah, yeah, I mean, being a Saint and great, I mean, that's squaring the circle, isn't it? Um, Yeah, I mean... He did a bit of everything, didn't he? Yeah, polymath. Sure. Um,
1: we we also have a message from Andrew Walker. Uh, he's been wondering about um, academic reassessment of Nero. Oh, good, good. Academic reassessment of Nero. That's very much my thing. You,
0: this is definitely um, this
1: person exists. It's not you under a <laughs> false name, Tom. <laughs> my sock puppet. <laughs> um, he's heard about it on another podcast. Boo his. Oh. Um, um, it amounts to well, he was rather popular with the plebs. People after him invoked him to boost their appeal and his critics were fake news from the swamp. Yeah, I mean, basically, yeah, can't disagree with that. Um, and uh, and then we've got a lovely, a lovely comment from um, Emma Salisbury. Um, I'm listening to this right now. It's rather nostalgically like being at a friendly dinner party with fellow historians, even though Tom Holland and Dominic Sandbrook can't hear me chiming in.
0: So that, that speaks to somebody who's clearly never been at a dinner party with historians. <laughs> um, <laughs> the mood of bitterness and rancour. <laughs> yes, well... <laughs> Bitterness and rancor is what
1: we're all about. Uh, So, anyway, you can, can, this dinner party, this friendly dinner party, do join in. You can chime in, tweet us, Mm. hashtag the rest is history. Um, And also, very excitingly, we've got an email address now um, restishistorypod at gmail.com. Restishistorypod at gmail.com. And I like that idea um, of the ultimate historical dinner party. I mean, I think that would be a good idea for a future episode. Say, what kind of people from across the range of history who would make the ideal dinner party?
0: Genghis Khan.
1: No, he'd be um, terrible. <laughs> he'd chop your head off and drink out of your skull. That's a terrible yes. idea. Anyway, listen, we, we won't we're not we're not gonna get onto that. Uh let's get onto the crown. Yes, let's.
0: Um because uh I, I'm guessing you have do you have views on this? Have you seen the crown? Um as you well know, Tom, I have never seen the crown. I have not seen so much as a minute of the crown. Um why would I? I mean I spend, you know, my working day thinking about Harold Wilson or whatever. And, and Dominic, th- has the fact that you
1: have never seen The Crown has it prevented you from writing about it?
0: No, obviously not. <laughs> I mean, that would be that would be anathema you, to all have, I stand for.
1: Have you, have you have you have you just written an enormous spread about the eighties to coincide with the new series of The Crown
0: set in the eighties? Um, no, I haven't. But I have given um, I have given a long interview to BBC History Magazine about <laughs> right, it. But they know right. I haven't seen it, so they describe it to me over the phone. They tell me what happens, and I tell them what I think of it. And I think it works very well. <laughs> and just just to make it clear to the listeners, you have you, you've
1: written a, a highly acclaimed series of books about modern British history that exactly cover the the span of the decades that yeah the crown exactly has covered. cover. And yes. your most recent book was um, it was what it was kind of like seven thousand page volume <laughs> about three the first three years of the Thatcher That's government, right. so from seventy nine right. to uh, to eighty two. Yeah. <laughs> so yes. So, um, bang in the bang in the middle of 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 that is is
0: the summer of nineteen eighty one, which of course has the royal wedding. Yeah, well, the royal wedding's obviously a big deal for the crown, isn't it? Diana and all that carry on, and it, um, it's a bigger deal for the crown than it is for your book. It
1: well, would be
0: fair to say a, there, it is mentioned in my book. I mean, there is a there is a whole section about the royal wedding, but I'm kind of more. I mean, to be honest with you, Tom, um, cakes, dresses you know, page boys, that sort of stuff fills me with utter gloom and and misery. So when I talked about it in my book, it was more what did people make of it, what was the meaning of it, um, and also actually putting it against the background of all this other stuff, which is so interesting, which is going on in 81. So the riots, the recession, the cricket, of course, which we'll come to later, um, this sort of tumultuous year. You know, 1981 is one of those years, I suppose, a little bit like sort of 1968 or something, that has a, has a meaning beyond... Or 2020, really perhaps. The, or 2020, exactly. I think it's a re, you can make a reasonable case that 1981 was the grimmest year in our lifetimes. And actually grimmer than 2020, because 2020 is worldwide, whereas 1981 was just... You know, it was Britain that was uniquely in a terrible mess. So, so, so the, I mean, the key thing about the, the, the Royal Wedding, everyone said it, it, it was like a fairy tale.
1: And the irony about that is, is partly that the backdrop... Is this you know, Britain in, in a state of complete turmoil, unemployment, rioting and so on? But also the fact, of course, that, that the marriage was going to go terribly wrong. And I just wanted before we get before we get on to um, the, the kind of historical context for uh, that 1981 provides, what's your view as a historian of modern Britain about the way in which the story of the royal family has kind of become like the matter of Britain that you know, like the matter of Britain in the Middle Ages was the story of King Arthur. That in a way, for lots of people, the story of King Arthur was was more real, you know, they knew more about that than they knew anything about, you know, what was actually happening in medieval England. And (laughs) there's there's a kind of slight sense with you know that globally what people know about British history is kind of the, you know, and, and the story of Diana in particular it's it's kind of like the modern matter of Britain. People know about the story of Diana. And it's become this mythic story. It's, does that have any historical significance? I mean, what does that say about Britain's
0: role in the okay, world? Okay, so I, I think that's true of Diana, right? I think that's true that you can take the story of Diana and you can say, but you can also tease out sort of historical meanings about, um, you know, the sentimentalization of British culture. Diana obviously played a, a big part in the sort of a, a new kind of. Or a renewed kind of emotionalism in Britain's sort of public life, um, you know, sort of embracing aid sufferers and so on. You are doing things that the, the the monarchy or the or the public figures wouldn't have done ten or twenty years earlier. So she's sort of she is an important figure in that context, obviously. But the royal family, more generally, I'm not so sure. So I agree with you. There are things that are that people care more about than the usual sort of political events. Sport is actually a really good example of that. So a lot of people, when they make sense of the recent past, they don't think about general elections and governments. They think about World Cups and, you know, how their team got on and all that kind of thing. And music, again, you ask anybody about their their youth or, or the, you know, if they grew up in the 60s or the 70s, it's often music that they turn to as their cultural references. And they'll say, well, the 60s ended when the Beatles broke up or, you know, the 70s ended when... You know, Sid Vicious died, or whatever it might be. People will look on those things as the sort of the sort of chronological structuring, I guess, for the recent past. Um, so I'm not so sure that the monarchy is the key one that I would go for. I mean, maybe it's because I don't really care that much about the sort of royal story. Um, well, I, it's interesting you talk about music because actually, uh, the, the thing for me that's
1: interesting about um, the 80s is that it's when I was a, a teenager, so I was becoming kind of aware of politics. I remember um, there was not the Nine O'clock News, which was kind of satire show, and they did not the royal wedding, and I, it was kind mm. of like the first disrespectful treatment of the royal family that I'd come across. And I remember, you know, I was kind of 13, thought it was th- thought it was great. But what I also remember is that there was a series on, um, I think, on Radio One at, at the time. that's called Twenty Five Years of Rock. And it ran from mm. 1955 to 1979. And it, um, it kind of set current affairs to a soundtrack of the music of that particular year. And it stopped in 79. It never went on into 1980, 1981 and so on. I was hugely disappointed about that. But what I was thinking now when you were talking about music and the, the tumultuous events of, of 81 is the way in which, um, a, a, you know, the really scarring experience was, was mass unemployment, um, inner city deprivation. And the soundtrack to that you always get is Ghost Town. And that's kind yeah. of like, you know, the moment you hear that, that, that is early 80s Thatcherism. It's, it just kind of conjures it up, doesn't it?
0: Yeah, it does. Uh, I mean, I did a TV documentary about the 80s. And I, I can't remember if we used Ghost Town or not, but when we were, we were doing it, we kind of went through and we said, everybody expects it. That when we do the minor strike by law, by sort of UN <laughs> mandated law, you have to have two tribes, don't you? Yes. yes, yes. So sort the of footage of the Battle of Orgreave and two tribes is playing. Yeah. And we, we sort of said, um we need to steer clear of this as much as we can, although I think we probably did use Ghost Town. Um so you're right that's but that's true of I mean that's true of older periods too, right? That when you're you're doing mid Victorian Britain, you always use Dickens. Y- yeah, but you're talking about music. Music is a kind of lingua franca if you like it's a uh, everybody understands what it means everybody has the same associations and so on so i don't think it's actually that different from using literary sources from earlier periods to illustrate you know to 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 sort of connote a particular time a particular atmosphere don't
1: you think well i, th- I think it's slightly different to the degree that um that, m- that music since the 50s has kind of provided a soundtrack um, that everyone remembers and recognises um, simply because the music industry has has, has grown so much and the, the ability of people to consume it has 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 grown exponentially, and kind of for that reason, it it, it does kind of conjure up images. So so you know, rather like the, the royal family, um, Britain has has been very central to the music industry so I would say that the story of the Beatles is a kind of parallel to the the story of Diana that it's it's a kind of almost mythic tale that everyone yeah. kind of instinctively knows um and likewise the um the story of music the story of the royal family the story of sport all of this is a kind of part of the uh, the, the the fabric of recent history and I just wonder you know is it part of that because that's what we remember that's what we experienced most vividly or or is
0: it more significant than that? Ah huh, that 's a good question. Is it more significant than that? I think it, 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 there is a sort of a story about the britain 's decline on the world stage and the way we sell ourselves to the world. We sell ourselves through pop culture now in a way that we wouldn 't have done you know in let 's say the nineteenth century. So if you'd said to somebody in nineteenth century Britain, well the most important thing about this given moment is our tremendously rich tradition of music hall and we will be remembered for our splendid novels, um, people would have laughed at you. They'd have said that's not important at all. Whereas now I think we do think these things are important and they are redolent of Britishness. So they're what we think matters. So when Danny Boyle did his 2012 Olympics opening ceremony, a lot of it was about Britain's tradition of music and storytelling and all the rest of it, that these things were kind of intrinsic to Britishness. Um, so it's not surprising that when we tell the story of the very recent past, it's those things that we look to because actually those things seem more sort of vital than you know the story of the rise and fall of Ted Heath's government, which most yeah. people couldn't give a damn yeah. about.
1: And, and, and yet, yeah, I suppose one of the one of the things about um, about the early eighties is actually that that politics is really kind of yeah. viscerally in your face in a way that perhaps it, it hadn't been at any other period. I mean, maybe maybe in the I don't know in, in in the Heath government with the
0: three day a week and <laughs> no, all that No, but far more than in the Heath government. I think uh, politics in the eighties is such a great narrative story. And and and, uh, and the divisions in Britain in eighty
1: one between yeah. north and south, between country and, and and inner city,
0: and I mean, give give a sense of how divided the country was. Um, I think enormously divided. And and you know, for people who don't, for younger listeners who don't remember it, Margaret Thatcher had come in in seventy nine um, after. Sort of perceived years of decline, and she basically said she's going to, she was going to administer this shock therapy, this sort of harsh medicine that would turn Britain around. And after two years, everything seemed to have got incalculably worse. So Britain was in recession. We had unemployment at more than you know heading towards four million, effectively. Um, young people in particular couldn't get jobs. You had um, riots first of all in Brixton in April, and then spreading around the country in the summer. You had massive um, unrest, massive um, rioting in Northern Ireland where you'd had the hunger strikes of um, Republican prisoners in the Mays prison. You had this sort of sense that the whole country was coming unglued and that almost uniquely in Western Europe, you know, here was this sort of former imperial power, this major industrial nation that was just coming apart and people were sort of... Um, and that it was politically tearing itself apart, I suppose. So the government was the most unpopular government since records began. The Labour Party, the opposition party was incredibly bitterly divided. And there was this real sense of, which far greater, I think, than anything even over Brexit, of, of rancour and of um, of sort of, you know, hostility. A real sense of the stakes being so high and the, and the stakes being the survival of the United Kingdom, you know the prosperity of you and your family you know this is not a sort of these are not symbolic issues these are incredibly visceral kind of bread and butter issues but the, you see the 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 reason why um recent history
1: is I, I find it kind of challenging to 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 get a handle on is that I lived through it and yeah. um i I was in a, a idyllic wiltshire village um, and oddly i I now live in Brixton so um you know and Brixton was was kind of the epicenter of of uh, police brutality and and, and the rioting, um, but you know it was it was it might as well have been a million miles from me. And what I remember about the summer of eighty one is that um, my 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 mother was a, in hospital. My father said, um, you know, he had to look after me, didn't know What else to do? He said, well, let's watch a test match. And I had no interest in cricket. I had no interest in sport at all. That test match was um, headingly. And it was one of the most transformative, remarkable uh, cricket matches of all time. I know that people who are not interested in cricket, um, certainly people who are, who, who are not British listening to this, will be slightly bewildered by it. But, but it, 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 there was this astonishing kind of fairy tale reversal where England had been down and out. They, came, they, they, they triumphed against all the odds over Australia, our old uh, sporting rival. Um, and uh, Ian Botham a figure who is now famous chiefly for supporting Brexit and having been raised by Boris Johnson to the House of Lords, was the hero of the hour. Um, and that essentially changed my life because it persuaded me to take on cricket, which has been the, one of the great loves of my life ever since. So that is how I remember 1981. Yeah. So emotionally, personally, that's that's my stake in it. Um, I, I, I had no personal experience of riots or unemployment or, um, or anything like that. And... It's kind of, you know, it makes as what of what's often said about the great events is that actually, and it's a point you make repeatedly throughout your books, that often, even when terrible things are happening, most people are actually perfectly happy.
0: Yeah, I think that's, that's right, Tom. I mean, I think we should get onto the cricket in a second. I can't believe, by the way, it took you more than 15 minutes of this podcast <laughs> well, to turn the conversation well. to Ian Botham. However, let's put Botham on one side. Let's, put, let's come back to Botham. And the cricket, because I think the cricket actually does have a, a a proper historical significance, which we can get into maybe after the break. But before that, um, yes, it's a very strange thing writing about contemporary history, because, of course, often when you're talking about it, you're talking it to people who live through it. Now, that's not a problem that you really have when you're doing, you know, Dynasty or, or Rubicon or any of your books on the Romans or the Greeks or whatever. I mean, they're not around to tell you you're wrong. When I go to talk about my books, often the, you know, there'll be people nodding in the audience and then there'll be other people who say, oh, but the 60s wasn't like that at all, or the 70s you know, wasn't like that. I mean, that's very common. And I guess one of the things with being a historian of contemporary Britain is, first of all, you have to, you have to put your own experience on one side, but also you have to juggle you know, your own job as the historian, which is to impose your pattern and to tell your story. But also the complexity of all these kind of individual stories. Now, that's not really something that you have to confront as an ancient historian because you don't have many sources, so you don't have all the individual stories of all the people who are unrepresentative. That's
1: that's that's that's
0: true. That's true. But I think that that um, one of
1: the fascinating things about about ancient history often is the, the glimpses you get occasionally of people leading their normal lives. Right, so, and it could be preserved on tombstones. It could be preserved in a poem. You know the hints of what it's like to just go out and uh, lie in a field while civil so war us, is going on all around
0: ex- you. Give us an example. Well,
1: actually, the, 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 the example that always sticks in my mind comes from the letters of Cicero. And Cicero, of course, is, is intimately involved in the convulsions that ends the Roman Republic. But there's a letter in which he, he writes um, about a, a house he owns, and it's got a crack. <laughs> you know, a crack has opened up, and he's a bit worried about this. You know, how's he going to repair it? And the idea that even amid all the events that Cicero was intimately involved in, he's worrying about kind of DIY repairs and things like that. What's he going to do? I I think that that's expressive of a a fundamental truth that life carries on. It goes on. There's kind of famous Hardy poem, isn't there? Which I think he wrote where he he says, um, "Do you know what, let's let's go for a break and I'll look that um, that Hardy poem up uh, and I'll read it to you when we come back.
0: Welcome back, everybody. I think Tom has a poem for us. I do. It's the first poem
1: that we've had on uh, The Rest is History. Uh, it's by Hardy um, and it's called In Time of the Breaking of Nations. I'm going to read the third the third verse and it's Yonder a maid and her white come whispering by, war's annals will cloud into night ere their story die. So, you know, peep. girls and boys will hang out with each other even though war's going on. But interestingly, the first verse only a man harrowing clods in a slow, silent walk with an old horse that stumbles and nods half asleep as they stalk. So, hardly
0: say, you know, that people will be ploughing with horses till the end of time, and that obviously isn't true. So, no. <laughs> things do change. Lots so of good examples like this, aren't there, Tom? I was thinking one before, um, just before the break. So, the, the only source from the day that Alexander the Great died was a, a Babylonian astrological diary kept by a priest. And, he, and it's all about the weather, Yes, so well, yeah. um, he sort of says, the king died. Well, meanwhile, it was very cloudy and overcast and bloody... And he gives more attention to the weather than he does. And that's how most of us think about politics and, and you know, it, the world, isn't it? It's, it's apocryphal, isn't it, that on the, the
1: 14th of July, <laughs> the, Louis the 16th diary read, nothing much happened. I, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, that's, I think that I, probably I said, is... <laughs> I think it was maybe it was the record of game or something. something I think that's like what that.
0: I think that's what all kings post about <laughs> 1700 are supposed to have written about <laughs> yes. major events.
1: Anyway, back 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 to uh, back back to 81. Um, yes, you, you were going to say that actually the um that the the uh, the, the cricket in 1981 was of immense historical significance, which I, I'd love yes. to be reassured on that because that,
0: that would be great to learn. I think it is of big great historical significance. So the news for Britain since the late 60s had been pretty awful. Um, so although most people were actually better off than they'd ever been, the sort of headlines were always bad. So from about 1967 onwards, which is when Harold Wilson devalued the pound, governments had been constantly in trouble and everything had been bad for Britain. And I think at the end of the 1970s, you, you started to get this sense that people were thirsting for some good news. So the first sign of that, I think, was the reaction to the SAS's raid on the Iranian embassy, which they liberated from a siege in 1980. And you have this almost hysterical um, reaction from the tabloids and so on, that Britain is great again, we're top nation, all of this kind of stuff. And then you see it again twice in 1981, once is the royal wedding, when, you know, we we lead the world in pomp and pageantry. And the other time is this incredibly hysterical reaction to winning one test match. No, three. We won three. We won three. Yes, but it's the Hellingley test that, that sparks the reaction. So it's the comeback. And I think the funny thing about it is, so Botham, who is the hero of the hour, he had been the England captain. He'd been this incredibly sort of youthful figure, this sort of raging lion who's carrying all before him, who's appointed England captain. Then he he doesn't win a match as captain. He has the worst record of any test captain at that point in history. And he's sacked from the captaincy. And the day that he's sacked from the captaincy, the headlines are juxtaposed with the um, images of rioting. So they're the two main stories, and they're both basically the same story. And that story is, Britain has been great, but now it's rubbish. It's tearing itself apart, it can't win cricket matches, its cities are in flames, all is sort of disaster. And then, Botham, of all people, the sort of incarnation of conservative, working-class England, turns it around, doesn't he, in this extraordinary sort of Herculean feat. Yeah. And the press are beside themselves. We are top nation again. And then just a couple of weeks later, you have the royal wedding. And, of course, what that all lays the foundation for, I think, is the sort of populist patriotism that you get with the Falklands. So it's basically laying, you know, these are all omens of what is to come a year later when the Falklands War happens. And and these are elements of what you'd call Thatcherism, of Thatcher's sort of, you know, nationwide appeal to a particular yeah. audience um, it, which both them still incarnates
1: well it's it, it's often said of the players association which is the trades union of, of professional cricketers that it's it's the only trades union that's more right wing than its employers <laughs> and, <laughs> and um and and, and both i mean both becomes a kind of emblem for the triumph of of thatcherite by well, england really rather than not rather yeah. than britain thatcherite england he's a hunting shooting fishing man um, and he, in due course he becomes Brexiteer and he's
0: now in the House of Lords. Um, well, what's so he, interesting about him, right, is that he's forward-looking and backward-looking. So if you take Ian Botham in 1981, he, you know, you can sort of look forward and say Brexit and all of that kind of stuff, or you can look back and you can say he's basically, what is he, an 18th century figure? You know, you can imagine him on the well, deck of HMS Victory, yes, you know, yes. the roast beef of old England. I mean, he's his very nicknamed Beefy. Yes, could not be more 18th century. And
1: there was a very embarrassing um, stage where he went to LA to try and become James Bond, which I think <laughs> will draw a curtain over that. But there is also another aspect to to um, to, to, to both them, which ties in interestingly with with the, particularly the race riots in uh, is is that um, Botham was was great friends with Viv Richards, the yes. probably the the, the the great West Indies batsman, the greatest batsman of his day. Um, Botham was always slightly in his shadow. Uh, and interesting, another thing, kind of you know looking forward to 2020 is that the uh, the trophy that West Indies and England compete for had been called the Wisdom Trophy is now the the, um, the Viv Richards Ian Botham Trophy. So th- there is also a sense in which he's looking forward to a future in which uh, race relations will be less explosive than they were in 1981.
0: Yeah, that's a really interesting point. And I think one reason that he got on so well with Viv Richards was they were both outsiders. And Botham felt very keenly his outsider status and a game dominated by white public schoolboys, so he he sort of he bonded with viv richards didn't he i think he wore yeah. the jamaican colors in a kind of wristband to show his solidarity with with richards yeah, yeah and that's really interesting because you have this sort of almost like black and white alliance of the outsiders against the old guard the toffs that both him and richards felt were dominating the game
1: OK, and so, so that's, a, that's the kind of thing that, that a, a historian would do, is to pick up on a totemic figure like that and tease out uh, aspects of him yeah. that perhaps you can then feed back into the broader context. Is that a fair thing to do? I mean, if we're looking at the royal wedding, we're looking at the, the, the cricket, we're looking at the music. Um, what does that tell us about uh, trade union
0: policy of the Thatcher government? <laughs> Answer me that. <laughs> that, that I, okay, you've sent me a challenge here. Well, I mean, my answer to that would be that uh, Thatcher's trade union policy succeeded because most ordinary trade unionists generally agreed with the piecemeal bits of the... So each individual reform that she passed, individual trade unionists agreed with. Their leaders didn't agree with them, but she obviously appealed to a kind of aspirational working class you know, sort of skilled, respectable, upwardly mobile working class people, particularly in England. So your classic kind of Essex man. Now, Ian Botham is not an Essex man, but there are definitely parallels. Um, And there's a kind of working class conservatism that Thatcher's union policy reaches out to, which is, you know, your union is actually, she says, your union is holding you back. Your collective loyalty is holding you back. You should think of yourself as an individual and get on and fight for a better life. That's what Ian Botham's about, isn't it? Right. And so so opinions on um well moving on from both of
1: I mean actually opinions on both of but but opinions on on the Thatcher government, and perhaps yeah. Mrs. Thatcher particularly it's it's a subject of history, but it still remains very, very intensely a, a matter of of politics as well. Your, yeah, your, your, I mean, your opinion of of what Mrs Thatcher did will define you politically today in twenty twenty. That's absolutely right, Tom. You know, in, in a sense, you know, like the French Revolution, it's too early to tell. What?
0: Well, I don't know, but it. it's too early to tell. Yeah. I tell you what, a story. I was when I first decided I was going to write these series of books. Um, about modern Britain, a friend of mine who's now a professor of history at Leeds, he said to me, Are you going to do the 80s? And, and I said, Oh, yeah, I have to. And he said, What? You're going to do Thatcher? And I said, Yeah, yeah, well. And he just kind of laughed in, in quite a sort of mocking way. And he said, Everybody will really hate you, you know. And I said, Why? He said, Well, because I know you. You'll try to find, you know, you'll see both sides. You'll try to be balanced and all this. You can't be balanced about Thatcher. People just want you to hate her. And of course, there's some truth in, in that. And my way of dealing with that partly was to say, Of Thatcher, you know, in some ways, she's the last sort of great man. We talked about greatness in the first episode. Great man, great woman, sort of historiographical subject left. So people base it. Their attitude to Thatcher is they think she changed Britain, either for good or ill. And and one of my big arguments is, actually, you know, is that really true? Or is she really reflecting changes that are driven from below, as it were? You know, if she died in 1978, would Britain have been very different? My argument is that it wouldn't. That what happened actually happened. You know, she was a symptom of the change, rather than the cause of it. So, actually, it doesn't matter whether you think she was brilliant or terrible. Because one of one of the um, uh, one of the arguments about what's happening at the moment
1: with COVID and the way that it's affecting the north of England much worse than the south is that this reflects um, kind of deep, deep, deep-rooted trends that that for which Mrs. Thatcher is is held responsible. The kind of the the, the destruction yeah. of heavy industry, mining, and so on. Do you, Do you think that there is? I mean can we trace the threads of what happened in the 80s through to the um, incidence rates of infection and COVID? Or, is that, or is well, that, does, mean, that,
0: does that remain a kind of political rather than historical judgment? I think that is a political judgment, actually, Tom. And I, I, two things occurred to me about that. One is, first of all, there'd been a big divergence between North and South um, right? long before that. I mean, I know you're a big fan of that book by Dan Jackson, The Northumbrians. Yes. And that really, I mean, you look at books like that, that really brings alive just how different the North... The experience in the north of England felt for hundreds of years from the experience in the south. You know, they're not; um, they were two nations, as it were, long before any Margaret Thatcher had been a, a glint in Alderman Roberts's eye. And so, so your perspective is is
1: basically the Marxist one that these are are, are deep rooted issues yeah. that, that are, you know, these, these are the great surging waves of history and that someone like Mrs Thatcher is just the kind of
0: the, the, the foam on the crest of the wave. That is exactly my position, Tom, and I'll, I'll give you an example of that. You talked about the death of heavy industry. Does anybody seriously think that without Margaret Thatcher, you know, tens if not hundreds of thousands of people would would every morning be going down pits to dig for coal? I mean all that, that heavy industry has died in every other Europe, virtually every other European country. So the idea that it's all Margaret Thatcher's fault and it would happen, I mean, it might have happened more slowly. It might have happened less contentiously. It might have happened, you know, things might have worked out differently. But the basic story would still have been the same. So in that sense, yes, that is kind of Marxist history, isn't it? Great big forces and all the rest of it. I, I wonder whether um, Mrs Thatcher will continue
1: to, to hold this kind of... Uh, Demonic status, or you know, status of heroin, depending on which side of the, the debate you stand. Because I, I, I remember there was some, was it last year, maybe the year before, there was a really excellent series on the BBC about Mrs. Thatcher.
0: Which was, yeah, it, it, I'm it, so glad you mentioned that, Tom, because I was the consultant for that series. Okay, well,
1: it was, I thought, I th- oh, Dominic, well, it was, it was, it was really excellent. I think, and I think it, it, um, it didn't have any commentary at all, did it? It
0: was just kind no. of no presenter, no commentary.
1: Yeah. Contemporary footage and, and interviewees. And I watched that with my daughter, who must have been, hmm, I don't know, 16 at the time or something, knew nothing about the subject at all. And her take on it was very much that of a kind of young feminist.
0: That yeah. That
1: she was watching a woman um, triumphing over, over these kind of uh,
0: chauvinist dinosaurs. Uh, and that was, that was her take. Yeah, I think that story, that side of it will definitely come out. Um, you know, your, people will see her as a working woman surrounded by men. Uh, in a way that they didn't, you know, 20 years ago, they didn't see the femininity of, of Margaret Thatcher. Or indeed they said she's not really a woman at all, which nobody really would um, would say now. I can see that the even as I'm speaking, the producer is, is throwing texts at me that say she didn't like women, she didn't champion women and all this kind of thing. But in that respect, actually, Margaret Thatcher was typical of women of her type. People used to talk at the time about queen bees, about women who had got ahead in the 60s and 70s and then didn't pull up other women after them. Uh, And psychologically, actually, you can sort of understand why some women behave like that. They thought, like Margaret Thatcher thought, well, I've got ahead on my own merits. Why should I, you know, um, institute affirmative action for other women? They should work just like I've worked. And there was always this tension between those women who'd been the first ones to get ahead, the kind of professional women, and then those who who came after them. But But you're right. I think people will... Younger people, I mean, younger people won't care, will they? In, in 10 or 20 years' time, will they care about the Falklands and the miners' strike? Well, Surely but I think, I think, I think that what, what my daughter's response to just to this that, that story, having
1: no sense of the broader politics of it, was that there was, a, again, a kind of mythic arc to the story of the woman who emerges from nowhere and, and, and becomes prime minister, which, again, al- aligns her with Diana. And it's interesting that the two, you know, we do have these two kind of mythic figures, and they're yeah. both women, in the eighties, and I guess that that's what the the, the
0: crown will be will be riffing off. That's what it's all about, isn't it? This series is all trading on that that, yeah. that business, isn't it? I mean, but 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 it does suggest that that a, a
1: crucial aspect of how history is um, understood and, and in a sense consumed is as myth.
0: the, yeah, the, the, the mythic that's, qualities that's, are, are themselves of historic significance. That's absolutely right, Tom. And I think your where you say the. The mythic qualities are of historic significance. That seems to me right too, because you th- Margaret Thatcher. I mean, sh- she was consumed, as it were, by the audience as a sort of. Um, she's either Cruella Deville, and yeah. a, or she's she's the people. What do they call it? The Catherine the Great of Finchley. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> they yes. Yeah. Or she's you know her her admirers see her as Boudicca, as Britannia, as Elizabeth the First. Yeah. So there there is there are these there's this constant myth of the, the regal woman, of the patriotic woman surrounded by men. And the witch. Who, yeah, and the witch. And she. which part you think she plays depends on your politics. But people always put her into these sort of mythic roles, don't they? I mean, nobody just says she's a politician like any other, she's a working woman like any other. They talk about her almost as this superhuman, you know, um, I, on the same level that they talk about elizabeth the first or 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 diana or buddha well Di- or, or diana because like diana likewise was uh, similarly divided
1: people you know was she the, the queen of people's hearts or was she um you know histrionic and 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 lacking backbone and again the country was kind of divided on that we don't really
0: do that with men though no i mean no maybe henry the eighth um but not many there aren't many men that we talk about in the same sort of dualistic way yeah
1: uh, we've run out of things to talk about. I think. I think. Have we? Have we? Uh, have we? Dis- have we?
0: Have we exhausted um, the whole of uh, the whole of the of the eighties? Do you know what's on? There's so much. We didn't talk about Tony Benn. We didn't talk about uh, Bobby Sands, Ken Livingston. But that just means we'll have to have another podcast all about 1981 in a few months' time. Oh, I tell you what, you haven't. What you haven't mentioned is is uh, Duran Duran and Simon Le Bon and no. the
1: the 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 fa- my favourite quote. Um, in your entire book on on the Thatcher period, from all um, seven thousand pages, <laughs> which actually because I was swatting for this, I've I've got it here. Um, and um, this is with reference to <laughs> "Union of the Snake" and "Hungry Like the Wolf." Um, Simon Le Bon said, "I've always liked poets like T. S. Eliot who are a little bit obscure, and that's definitely part of my style lyrically." so there you go The Wasteland could have been a Planet Earth <laughs> and the Wasteland there yeah. we go yeah. <laughs> um,
0: Proof Rock and uh, You Knew the Snake yes so this, this really is the, the, the podcast that, that reaches the parts that other parts don't should, we should do have a Duran Duran reference every week don't you think Tom? certainly <laughs> <Sorry>, challenge <laughs> then we can move on to Spandau Ballet and.
1: yeah well yes yeah, a new Romantics we'll try and quote a, a new Romantics lyric um, every, uh, every week That would be an interesting challenge. Um, And uh, talking of every week, I think it's uh, time to close off for this week. Uh, We'll be back
0: next week. Dominic, have you got anything else to add? Uh, Lots, but we don't have time, so I'll probably have to just forego it. But I hope you've all enjoyed it. And we're going to be out every Monday, aren't we? Monday morning, Tom? Yeah, Monday morning. Yeah. That's the plan. So please do subscribe and rate and review. But only re- well, only review it if it's a positive review, obviously. Yes, yeah, just send um, those negative reviews um, directly to Tom. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> yeah. Um,
1: and, uh, and uh, any questions, any thoughts, any comments, um, do contribute. Um, the rest is history pod at gmail.com, rest is history pod at gmail.com. That's how to uh, contact us, or you can uh, message us on Twitter, uh, and we will be back next week. Bye bye. <laughs>